0: It's great to have you joining us on Radio Free Georgia's In Tune to Nature program. I'm host Carrie Freeman, coming to you from Atlanta in January of 2023. And today we're going to be talking about multiculturalism in terms of the creativity and morality found in the cultures of various animal species, besides the human species, through a discussion with Dr. Carol Gigliotti, author of the book, The Creative Lives of Animals by NYU Press, published in 2022. Carol Gigliotti is an author, artist, animal activist, and scholar whose work focuses on the reality of animals' lives as important contributors to the biodiversity of this planet. She is Professor Emerita of Design and Dynamic Media and Critical and Cultural Studies at the Emily Carr University of Design, Vancouver, BC, in Canada. She has a B.S.S. of Performance Studies, a Master's of Fine Arts in Printmaking, and a Ph.D. from the Advanced Computing Center of Arts and Design at The Ohio State University. Dr. Gigliotti is the editor of the book, Leonardo's Choice, Genetic Technologies and Animals, and the author of numerous book chapters and journal essays. Her work is supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, and the Sitka Center for the Arts, among others. She's on a number of international advisory boards concerned either with media or with animal studies. Her new book, The Creative Lives of Animals, which we will discuss today, challenges the current assumptions of creative offering, of creativity, offering a more comprehensive understanding through recognizing animal creativity, cognition, consciousness, and agency. Her website is her name, com. Let me spell that. Carol starts with a C and her last name is spelled G-I-G-L-I-O-T-T-I. Welcome, Dr. Giliotti. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, so glad to finally have you on the show. Uh, well, <laughs> well, yeah. Over the last decade, we've seen a lot of impactful books highlighting the various capabilities of fellow animal species, especially related to their cognitive and emotional abilities and how we've underestimated other animals. And your latest book adds to this pioneering field of animal studies work. What unique ideas were you wanting to contribute by researching and writing the book, The Creative Lives of Animals?
1: Yeah, all my creative work, writing and visual arts, has been about our relationship with animals. And um. And also relationships that cause them pain and suffering. So mm-hmm. since the early 2000s, I, um, while I'd been writing in that sort of genre um, about genetic technologies and the animal industrial complex, I was also collecting research on animal creativity. And I, I realized at some point I really wanted to write about animals' creativity because not only did I find it fascinating, which... Yeah. Really, it was, was a fun book to write. But I wanted to visualize for people um, that animals are more than victims because that's a lot of how we talk about them. Um, But they're actually very powerful and essential beings who contribute as individuals to biodiversity and the flourishing of this planet. So I thought that was an important thing to do.
0: Right, it's another way to show respect for their capacities yes. To see them, um, especially when we think of creativity as something that's more human. You know? yes. Um, yes. Yeah, so yes. many kind of arrogant assumptions <laughs> we tend to make just about our species. Um, but I would think creativity is one that is not, um, most people have not given it to animals, maybe outside of a few um, animals that do, like birds that do creative dances or something, outside of right. that. I think right. we're just kind of um, we've been a little blind to it.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah. and there's lots of research I found. Yes, yeah. um, and when it wasn't specifically about creativity, um, it was very what what I did was sort of try to tease out the idea right. that it was creativity because of course I taught creativity for way too long. 30 years
0: or so. Oh, that's great. And I, and there's so many chapters I could focus on in the book, but I chose the last chapter on on culture because as an animal protection advocate, I'm especially fascinated by work that helps us acknowledge that humans are not the only animal species with a culture and thus Mm -hmm. to respect multiculturalism includes respecting non-human cultures too. So I wanted to focus our interview today on the culture chapter in your book. You outline a variety of scholarly definitions of the word culture. Which definition of culture do you find most comprehensive and
1: universally applicable, and why? Um, As you said, uh, culture in animals sometimes, well, it was very uh, contentious when I started researching it. And then, um, actually, when I got to that chapter, literally... While I was writing the chapter, mm-hmm. sorry, let me just have a little drink of water. There goes my voice. I was
0: just drinking some tea too. Oh, oh boy. Um,
1: uh, the, the You know, it, it, exactly what you said, the acceptance of culture and animals was really difficult for people and scientists uh, to accept. And researchers, mm-hmm. it was really really difficult. But um, it, by the time I got to the end of that chapter, uh, it wasn't. It was really interesting. Yeah. Um, so the the uh, one of the things that, or one of the definitions I thought was really useful was Grant Ramsey, who's a philosopher of biology, um, and he constructed another definition, um, hoping, you know, that uh, that human cultural researchers. And those who study culture and animals both might use it. And he says, and this is a quote, information transmitted between individuals and groups. And you notice that very broad term, insert information uh, information and transmitted between individuals or groups, where this information flows through and brings about the reproduction of and a lasting change in the behavioral trait. you know, and I really like that definition, but I think the the simplest one and the the one that really, I think, makes a difference to people, because it's so true for us, too, was how Whitehead's and Luke Rendell's definition in their book, The Culture of Whales and Dolphins. Um, the way we do things. Yeah. And I love that. That's just... Yeah that's exactly what culture is for, for us as well. And it is for so many, so many animals as well. Yeah. And it's something, and, and the way we do things is passed
0: down. And that's why, even though it'll, it'll adjust itself, you know, over the years, but, and it changes. um, And that's why we know it's not completely instinctual and that there's, you know, aspects of choice there. Um, But but in some of that from the former definition is like we tell each other and help to reinforce constantly <laughs> like yes, the way yes. we do things or the way the right way to do things or maybe new ways of doing things or, or you know um, well
1: and there's actually uh, uh, Kevin Leyland who was uh, one of the first people involved in looking at creativity in animals um, you know has a book out um, and and says that's where animals lose it is in culture. And of course that's, (laughs) that's not true, Um, which he's, I think, come on board with. So, because they do pass it on and they pass it on through communication um, and, you know, sometimes social learning, uh, just all the different ways that we do.
0: And can you give us some examples that you used in the book? A lot of them are from whales and dolphins related to animal cultures
1: yeah. Um I <laughs> I I thought one of the, the most interesting ones, and kind of, oops, there goes my, um, and really kind of sad though, was that um even in the same waters, some orca ecotypes eat fish, some eat mammals. So um what I I read was in the Pacific Northwest, um There are three distinct uh, ecotypes, and Antarctica has four. So, and this is in Whitehead and Rendell's book, um, three mammal-eating orcas were captured off the coast of British Columbia, that is a problem in itself, and housed with fish eating orcas. So those uh, mammal-eating orchids refused to eat the salmon they were given, Uh. brace yourself, for 75 days. And one of the three died rather than eat it. And then the other two, I guess, decided, okay. They took four more days and then they they began to eat the the fish that they were given. Because um, and biologically by time-
0: they could, like the orcas could all either maybe all eat seals or all eat salmon or both, but certain cultures are like, um, you know, seal eaters. and then some of them were salmon eaters yes you can see in that example how they just did not want culturally inappropriate food even at the risk of dying i mean that's extreme
1: yes um and so actually they they were taken out of they the people who captured them just put them back um Oh really like in the ocean or back in Kentucky? no no in the ocean they didn't they just let them go because oh, good. they were too much trouble, right? Um yeah, but orca cultures are really interesting because they're very picky eaters. Um yeah. but there, there are lots of ways in which they're there the the ecotypes, which is actually the different kinds of cultures really of of orcas, um The culture in their lives is very, very important. Yeah. Um, And actually, if I could just give you another example from not a mammal, which I think is also really interesting. Um, And this is from entomologist Mark Moffat, whose book, uh, uh, Life with Ants, A Cast of Millions, (laughs) which (laughs) is a really fun book to read. Yeah. Um, and he says, and he's one of the top entomologists, um, through ancient languages, uh, ants use, you know, chemical signals. They respond to the bod- bonds and needs of their nest mates. Mm-hmm. Um, and like us, they cooperate to meet yeah. those needs, um, sometimes by altering nature They build fortresses, stockyards, highways, and nurseries. This was one of the things that just kind of blew me away when I first started doing the research early on. Um, And they do that, you know, to really keep their communities uh, together and flourishing. They, um, you know, obtain and they distribute resources and labor. They preserve civil unity, something that we just really have trouble with (laughs) um and they defend against intruders so i i really you know wanted to give those two because you have a mammal such as an orca that we look at as well yeah they're intelligent and they might do that but then ants which you know many of us consider to be pests yeah uh so we don't uh, tend to
0: respect non-mammals as much, since we're mammals. And also the smaller the creature, the the more insignificant, which is kind of a trivial way to make uh, decisions about somebody's worth, but I think that's what we tend to do. The larger
1: animals, we tend to value more. Yeah, the megafauna is where we'll be a little more generous than with, you know, the the animals or the, like insects or reptiles or amphibians, so. Now creativity can also reflect an individual animal's problem solving
0: and may not be a widespread practice across the whole species culture. Right, right. Can you share an anecdote regarding an example of how some individual may prove more creative than their pack mates or other family members?
1: Yeah, and I, you know I I gave this example at the beginning of the book because I it it actually um only I only found out about it was only sort of publicized um, when I was finishing up the introduction because you know I wrote the introduction I wrote it and then I rewrote it last right <laughs> you know yes. good um, writer <laughs> so yeah. there there was a um, a chimpanzee in uh, in captivity but in a very large you know sort of enclosure that was very natural. Still don't like it, but in any case. And her name was Julie. And at some point she decided that she wanted to wear uh, a leaf as an earring. (laughs) And so she put the earring in her, the leaf into her, um, behind her ear, and it sort of hung down. And what was so interesting was that I think it was 13 members of uh, her companions actually took that up and began wearing <laughs> yeah. earrings. I knew she was going to make a, fa- like a fashion. <laughs> that, like, when you're
0: like, hey, I like that.
1: I know. Or, and, you know, that's what I, we do
0: too. Like, yes. we copy other people
1: who we think are creative and, as role models. And, you know, I think this happens quite a bit with animals, yeah. and we just don't notice it because we're so oblivious. Uh, yes. Um, you know, and I, I count myself into an oblivious person. Um, you know, even now, I mean, I get busy and I know I'm missing things. And so, you know, if I could, and I was, you know, completely rich, I would just lie around and watch (laughs) animals, but pay close attention to these. Yes. yeah. And and when you do pay close attention, it's, it's just so exciting and, and, and interesting and kind of astounding because the kind of creativity that animals show is, is really quite wonderful. Yeah. If you're just joining us on Radio Free Georgia, this
0: is In Tune to Nature and I'm host Carrie Freeman talking about the cultures and creativity of animal species with Dr. Carol Gigliotti, author of the book, The Creative Lives of Animals published by NYU Press. Her website is her name, carolgigliotti.com. Dr. Gigliotti, you also get into examples of creative morality within animal cultures. And I often cite Beckhoff and Pierce's book, Wild Justice, when I want to talk about ethics in various right. animal societies, a book yeah. you also reference, among among yeah. others. What did you discover about how certain animal species exhibit a
1: sense of morals? Well, I want to um, thank you for bringing up this particular topic, because you're the only interviewer so far that has. Everybody else was
0: too... I'm so into... Well, I teach ethics, and animal <laughs> ethics just stands out to me. And I like it. I want to say we're not the only ethical animal you know yes. and so cuz that's another reason we tend to privilege ourselves is like oh look how great we are we're talking about ethics well a lot of other beings they may not talk about it but they practice it
1: <laughs> yes yes exactly uh which is you know something that i also talk about in the book a bit that you know in it, when it's, not, it's sometimes the the decision to be ethical is not really a pre-thought right one has but you just jump into something like you know yes saving a baby from fire you know something uh, something i've not done but other people have done but you would Um, do it carol you know it yeah i hope so given the chance Um, yes um so yeah i mean one of the things i think that's really interesting is that the uh, the emotional uh part uh, both creativity and ethical behavior I is very, very important. And it's something that sometimes philosophers don't even like to talk about, um, right. you know, especially analytical philosophers. It's very much a logical thought process to be ethics whenever, again, the emotional right. uh, part of being ethical plays quite a large role. And, you know, in creativity as well. And And I do think that Those two things together are really what morality is about because often, so often the decision or the impulse to be ethical or to be kind, to be compassionate is a creative one. One, In order to to actually act on that impulse, sometimes one has to be creative. Um, Especially if there's a conflict. And that's really when yes. ethics comes in, like, okay, yeah. there's
0: conflict between us, and I need to resolve this with the least force possible or in, in the kindest way possible. How can I do that?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, the first, maybe one of the ones that it's just a short thing that Stephanie Preston and um, Franz um write about this, and they Talk about the fact that rats in captivity, again, not so hot, but yeah. It, you know, and I tried to give mostly examples from animals who were not in crap in captivity, but sometimes the ones in captivity were almost more impressive because they were in a state that, of course, they were were going to be forced to prove all these things about themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So rats will choose. Releasing a trapped cage mate over mm-hmm. the ability for them to uh, to access uh, attractive food—that's so um, generous. It's showing generosity. Yes, and if they have if they have been able to rescue their friend, um, they share the rewards then with you know with the, wow. the yeah. previously trapped uh, rat. And and then they say even if they are blocked from releasing their fe- friend, they still try. They they make attempts to help. Yeah, and so those kinds of activities, I think, that's where the creativity comes in. I think where, well, that didn't work. Let me try another way to help my friend yeah. here. Um, it was.
0: I think this was the chapter where you talked about um, like a wolf dog that you had to take care of for a while that was mixed in with your other dog family yes, yes. and then one of your little dogs decided I think to bite the wolf yes. based on some kind of food <laughs> aggression which was really not a good idea but the wolf no. decided to be creatively compassionate in in his response
1: right yeah I mean he uh he was uh quite a large wolf and Sophie my crazy part uh Uh, golden retriever um who was not the first time she had bit somebody or another animal so you know but she just marched right over there and bit thunder in his haunch and drew blood oh gosh I know and like I say in the book it was the only time I ever saw thunder you know sort of morph into this wool of wolf of fable he turned around and he you know and that must have been pretty scary Because Gary, he could have killed your other dog if he wanted to, if he chose to. Absolutely. But then he He stopped. He chose not to. And that was it. He was telling her, go away. So she she left. And I was (laughs) like, oh, my goodness. Thank goodness. So then I I turned around and literally she came right back over and tried to bite him again.
0: (laughs) And instead
1: (laughs) of, you know, he knew. And there had been other chances for him to. To not be nice. I actually, if you wanted to, with one of one or more of the, you know, the dogs I had. But um, with her particularly, he had always treated her with respect and kind of stayed away from her. Right. Um, but what he did was he just took his whole body and he threw it over the food. <laughs> right. <And> problem <laughs> solved. Problem you know. solved. You're not yeah. getting my food. Um yeah which I, I just, I, at that point, you know, I grabbed her collar and I put her in the other room. I was like, Oh, nothing ever happened other than that. But yeah. Um, and he gave
0: was... you a chance to help resolve. I mean, both he and you got involved yeah. to resolve it in a, like using yeah. creativity in um a a compassionate way that, because that's what you learn in ethics is to like that any kind of, problem should be resolved with the least force or least harm possible. And that's what Thunder, the wolf, chose to do in that situation instead of attacking her back. But he had to figure out, how do I protect my food without hurting her?
1: And I think that's very creative. I mean, I think in lots of situations, in terms of ethics, we're kind of faced with two very, not you know, two not very great decisions, Right, you know, they're they're just they're both it makes it a really palatable. And how do we choose those, or maybe make up a third one that is very useful and isn't so um, negative? Yeah. Well, we've so. got to wrap up
0: um, pretty soon, but I wanted to just ask you real quick: what lesson do you hope readers take away from your creative
1: lives of animals book? The crea- what I want people to take away they can take away whatever they want, but what I'd like them to take away the creat- is the creativity of animals exists on the individual, group, species, and ecosystem level. And the loss of an individual animal is the loss of that individual's unique contribution to those interacting levels. And of course, I, I yep. really think, and I say this in the epilogue, that is a really important thing to take away for um, wildlife conservation. Right, uh, the
0: focus on the individual and not just yes. the group as if every member is interchangeable with anyone because else. Because they're
1: not. Yeah,
0: yeah. right. Well, um, I don't know if you can answer this question. last question in like 30 seconds, but <laughs> for those who are interested in learning about animal cultures, what would you suggest they read or watch or maybe an organization or conference they could go to?
1: yeah, I'll just give you a couple things. Um, get the book, Animal Architecture. It's uh, illustrated. It's a fantastic book. They're uh, just wonderful photographs. You will never think about be, you know, any kind of insect um again, uh, in the same way. yeah, um Allison and James Kaufman, they have a book called Animal Creativity and Innovation that came out as an edited book in two thousand and fifteen lots of interesting stuff in there and then if you really want to be addicted to something go to the cornell ornithology lab and look at what you mentioned in the beginning the birds of paradise project uh, yeah <laughs> um and what's interesting about it is how the the researchers went back and photographed every single um bird of paradise from uh, the, what the males did from the females point of view ah, to see their creative dances. Yes. But yeah. only from the females point of view is that's, ah. that was what they went back to do. Yeah. And that is really interesting and get, gives one great pause. I think. that's awesome. <laughs> Well, thank you. That's the end of our show, but I want to thank you Carol Giliotti
0: for being with us on radio free Georgia's in tune to nature program. And thanks for your years of working, developing critical animal studies and good luck with your book, The Creative Lives of Animals. Thank you very much. I was really happy to be here. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to In Tune to Nature, broadcasting every Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time, online at wrfg.org and on Atlanta radio station 89.3 FM. We post action items, news, and podcasts on the show's website, facebook.com slash intune to nature. The views and opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of WRFG, its board, staff, or volunteers. I'm one of those volunteers. I'm host Carrie Freeman, asking you to please support independent, non-commercial media like Radio Free Georgia. And remember to use your own creativity to take care of Mm -hmm. yourself and others, including other species. Thank you for listening. Cheers.